You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Different circumstances surrounding both of the teams, but I do chuckle sometimes at what gets made a lot of on social media, and I know that doesn't encompass everybody. It's a very small percentage of the people, quite frankly, but it does make me chuckle from time to time. It's Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd. In Calgary, a lot of the conversation from those who cover the Flames and those who follow the Flames ardently is, man, these might be the opening night lineup. This might be the opening night yep. line. Blake Coleman, man, he's right beside Lindholm and Kachuk. Okay, is that going to work? Should he be playing there? They kept Johnny and Monty together. I guess that's not that big of a surprise. Mangiapane's going to play on that line. Okay, I guess that's what they're going to go with. I guess this is what Daryl Sutter wants in Vancouver. It's Do you see who's leading the bag skate today? Do you see who's trailing in the bag skate today? <laughs> like this is an annual Travis Green training camp tradition where you're going to get skated hard on that first day, see how players fare, and go from there. Who pukes? Who doesn't? Is it a big deal? Oliver ekman Larson trailing in group one in the bag skate. That's it. Trade was bad. Canucks lose the trade. It's over. Wrap it up. It's done. Can't succeed. Can't nope. succeed. Niels Hoaglander up. probably should be playing on the first line. He's leading. <laughs> yep. Hey, I, I yep. don't want to. I'm not trying to mock the guys who come in in good shape. I think it's part of your responsibility as a professional athlete. I don't think it's everything. I do think there's something to it. And you've heard plenty of prominent athletes, many of them in the NHL, say, look, you want to have a good season? Do your work in the summer. I don't think because you might be trailing in a bag skate or because you might be leading a bag skate that all of a sudden you're going to be the best player for your team that season or you're going to have an exceptional year or a terrible year. But there's a little something to it. Well, look, maybe maybe it's not Oliver ekman Larson having a tough time with it. Maybe everyone else that he was skating against is just doing really phenomenally well. Maybe that's what's going on here, Scotty. Well, here's the other thing. Did you expect Oliver ekman Larson to lead the Vancouver Canucks conditioning stint at this point of his career. Would not have been who I placed my money on. No, probably not. Probably not. It's Scott Rentoul, it's Jamie Dodd. We'll talk plenty of hockey on this program. We'll update you with any pertinent information from around the National Hockey League and maybe get back into that Jack Eichel discussion. It's such a strange story, and I just have no idea when it's going to end. I would have expected it would have been over by now. It's not. Did you see what happened last night in Ottawa? There was that occasional midweek CFL football game last night, and it was won by the Hamilton Ticats, which I don't think is any surprise. Did you no. see the weather? Did you see the weather to begin with? Like, that was a monsoon in the nation's capital. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty ugly there. Absolutely. I did see at one point uh, the score was one nothing, which is always great in a CFL game when you get the one nothing score. I always appreciate that. But, yeah, it was ugly, ugly weather to be playing in in Ottawa. I saw a screenshot from a U Sports game on the weekend that was 2-1 at one point, which is almost better. <laughs> that is it's almost much be- better. And, and of course, as a, as a fan of Canadian football, you oh, was that two singles to one single? Yeah. Was that a safety to a single? Like How did they <laughs> how did they arrive at the 2-1 scoreline? But I digress. So Ottawa loses again. Ottawa dismal on offense again. That's kind of been par for the course for the Red Blacks this season. This hasn't happened, though, and some people jumped some conclusions last night. Do you agree or disagree? So what happened in the in the second half of that game, the Red Blacks lose the guy who was their starting quarterback, Dominic Davis, to an injury. He throws a pick, and he's trying to chase it down. It ends up being a pick six, and he pulls his hamstring. So he's out. 
So the guy who started the season as the starter, but it's now the backup. He's in. It's Matt Nichols. Well, Matt Nichols takes off with about seven and a half minutes to go in the fourth quarter. He gets hit on a weird scramble run. He can't play. Looked like he hurt his left hand or wrist. Well, there's two quarterbacks on the roster. So now it's that who's the emergency quarterback? And it was Nate Bahar, so he has to go in there and take snaps. I heard one of my favorite quarterbacks of all time after the game, Matt Dunnigan, saying, they got to dress three quarterbacks. We can't have this happening. Is that jumping too far, Jamie, because this doesn't happen very often? No, I, it's pretty common around football leagues in general to only, dra- to only dress two quarterbacks, right? This is a situation that teams know can come up, but a lot of teams make that same calculation, right? Okay, we'll, we'll, roll, our, we'll roll the dice. We'll take our chances that both guys won't get injured in the same game. So I, I don't think it's fair to really point the finger at Ottawa in this situation. This is something that could happen to a lot of other teams in that place as well. Well, and to be fair, he, and Matt Dunningham wasn't pointing the finger at Ottawa. He was saying quarterbacks – There should be three of them dressed for every single game because we can't have professional football where guys are taking snaps and they don't even really know how to take snaps. I understand his point, but it's like that with a lot of roster decisions. And kicker is one that comes to mind. The kicker doesn't play as often as the quarterback, and the game doesn't generally hinge as much on the kicker as it does the QB. But if you lose your kicker mid-game, We've seen that happen time and time again. Who's going to be the person kicking? Are you going to go for field goals? It's not quite the same as a position player coming in to pitch when you run out of pitchers in your bullpen, but this just happens from time to time. I don't, I don't think we need this massive shakeup all of a sudden. It's up to every team. If you think you've got a couple of injury-prone quarterbacks or you're a little worried about it, you don't think you have a guy who could come in and take snaps, okay, dress a th- third quarterback. That's up to you, but it's going to cost you another spot on your roster. Well, and you could point to, I would say, like even offensive line, right? Okay, if if you – most teams dress, dress, what, seven offensive linemen? Occasionally eight, but a lot of teams go with seven. So, you know, all of a sudden, if three O-linemen happen to get injured in the game, then you're in a situation where you're plugging a tight end in there, right? That's not ideal, and that's something that could put the health of your quarterback at risk or the health of one of your running backs at risk, right? If you have a makeshift – offensive line there that's kind of that's why you have to make roster decisions though right you have to think about those scenarios and which ones you're most willing to deal with if they come up I agree with you 100 percent, and that's actually I said kicker but the first scenario I thought of was O-line and we have seen that before in the Canadian Football League I remember it specifically with the Calgary Stampeders where mid-game they had to take a guy who was dressed as a defensive lineman but had played some O-line in college and guess what you're playing O-line today because we got injured, and some teams roll with six. They have that one backup O-lineman. Some teams roll with seven. You get a couple of injuries there. You get three injuries. We're going to have to figure it out for today, and how we're figuring it out, friend, is you. You're going to play there. <laughs> it doesn't happen often, and this is why you have to make your roster decisions. Well, that that's just it, right, is you can't – you can't protect yourself against every potential eventuality, right? Because you don't have an unlimited roster. You have a set roster size, and you're going to expose yourself to at least a little bit of risk in one of these areas. Because, you know, as you say, okay, well, everyone just dress three quarterbacks. you got to make sure this doesn't happen. That means you're taking a roster space away from somewhere else, and maybe it is the D-line. Maybe it is the O-line. And all of a sudden, you run into more of a risk in that situation. I think it just really comes down to, you know, Every team has to look at their roster and kind of think about where can we afford to take those risks and where can't we? I'll tell you what would be more fun. It would be more fun 
if they had an e-bug situation in professional football. So every single city, Jamie, <laughs> in Canada has to have a guy who played some college quarterback, but he's not good enough to be on a roster and maybe occasionally comes out and throws some footballs. He's sitting in the stands at every game, and if one team loses its starting quarterback, isn't coming back for the game, okay, buddy, go get dressed and throw on the uniform because there's a chance if this next guy goes down, you're going in. I wouldn't mind seeing like that. It. The the e-bug situation like but for quarterbacks. Do you know do you know offhand who it would be here in Vancouver, Scotty, who would be putting their hand up to sign up for that one cuz that's I mean it's one thing to be the goalie, the e-bug goalie in uh in in the NHL, but guys aren't coming in and trying to sack you when you're the goalie, right? That's happening in professional football. So, you'd have to be feel pretty good about your athletic ability to sign up for that one. Well, generally when it happens in hockey, it's a player who has just come out of youth sports yeah. or played college somewhere in the States or played junior hockey and happens to reside in that city, and they talk about it. can't be signed to that professional contract, but here's the deal. You're our e-bug. I don't know who that player would be right now in Vancouver or in Calgary, but maybe some of our texters can let me know. If, if you know a quarterback in your city, hit us up at 960-960-650-650. Who would you nominate in your city to, it wouldn't be the e-bug, it would be the E-B-Q-B, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, well, maybe it's Buck Pierce. He's calling plays for the Winnipeg. <laughs> Did you see that in college football? That a guy who had recently joined the coaching staff but played college quarterback, he was having to suit up for one of the college teams? I did see that, yeah. That is awesome. a real fan. <laughs> At least it's a recent graduate. <laughs> yes. At least it's not somebody yeah. who's like, well... I used to take snaps, and I'm pretty comfortable in there, and I understand the lingo, and, and I can call a few plays. I can hand the football off, but, you know, it's been 10 years since I was behind center yeah. and somebody was hitting I'm, me. I'm 43, and I'm suiting up for this. Yeah, no, that would not be ideal. So somebody immediately points out the David Ayer situation, says, or he's a Zamboni driver for the home team that eventually loses. I mean, that would be certainly a distinction if the – emergency backup quarterback came into a game and it was a tightly contested contest and that's the guy you lose to hey you uh you have a team with enough you know talent on the offensive line and in the skill position talent you're handing the ball off a lot the defense does its job maybe you're playing ottawa in the cfl so it's not that tough an opponent you never know I think you and I are going to campaign for this. The emergency backup quarterback. One in every city. Come on, CFL. You can do something here. You can have a little fun with this. You can get ahead of the curve. Let's go. Scotty, we've got a we've got a nomination that it should be you, Scott Rintoul, as the backup, emergency backup quarterback here in Vancouver. Inge Texan says it would be you, Scotty. I played against you in flag football. You're a great quarterback. There you go. Man. This might be your chance. Years gone by, great is a very, very strong term to use for my quarterbacking <laughs> prowess. I appreciate the compliments. I would not label myself a great quarterback. I'm not sure I'm going to suit up as the emergency backup quarterback at BC Plays or if I happen to be rolling in Calgary at McMahon Stadium. It's Scott Rintoul. It's Jamie Dodd. Did you see who's going to suit up as the starter for Chicago Bears this weekend? I sure did. Justin Fields. It's uh, It's not officially... The Justin Fields era, because Matt Nagy is, you know, still saying, no, no, no. As soon as Andy Dalton's healthy, he's back in. He's our he's our number one starter. But, yeah, Justin Fields gets the start. It's pretty exciting. It is. And that's quite by Nagy. Not, look, Andy yeah. Dalton can't go this week. Justin Fields is playing. Also, Andy Dalton's still our starter. Andy Dalton is still QB1 here 
in Chicago. As we know, Jamie, that's all going to be dependent on how Justin Fields plays. Yes. He's really good. Chicago Bears win games. Andy Dalton's not starting another game for them. I've watched this happen too many times. You can say what you want. I know exactly how this plays out if Fields plays well. Yeah, no, if if Fields throws 300 yards, doesn't turn the ball over, gets in the end zone a couple times, Andy Dalton's not coming back in, at least not in the following week, right? Like, Justin Fields has every opportunity here to actually win the starting job, despite what Matt Nagy is saying. Man, he's got a tough opponent. I know Cleveland's defense hasn't looked very good in the first couple of weeks, and maybe it was an eye-opener the way that Houston played against them last week. We expected Cleveland's defense to be really, really good this year. They played Kansas City week one. I think you have to throw that out a little bit of saying, wow, I don't know how good their defense is. Well, you play Kansas City. Sure. For, just put that aside because you can't use that to say, oh, they've got a really good or a really bad defense because Kansas City lights everybody up. Houston week two, mm, not so sure I saw that coming. I thought Cleveland would be a little more locked down against the Texans. Perhaps they overlooked the Texans as most of us have. They're going back home. Justin Fields played his ball in Ohio. There are going to be a lot of people going to see him in this game. That's a tough environment to roll into for your first NFL start. It's a really tough matchup, especially because, yeah, you've got the – first of all, you're going on the road against a team with Super Bowl aspirations. As you said, I I still think that defense can be pretty good. And you know the offense is going to be effective as well, right, with the running game. So you're probably going to be in a situation where the game game script dictates that you throw the ball a lot, right, and that you have to make plays as the quarterback. I don't think this is going to be a situation where they can really ask him to kind of manage the game and grind things out. They're going to need him to make plays there. You would think, and it's Jadavian Clowney and Miles Garrett coming off the edge. Yep. That's tough. Against an offensive line that's no good. Chicago's offensive to the line, NFL. that's part of the rationale that a lot of people have used is that, look, the offensive line's no good. I know that he can outrun some of the problems, but they might be putting him in harm's way if they throw him in there behind that O-line. I don't know that it's the spotlight game this weekend, but it got a lot more interest from me knowing that Justin Fields is going to be the guy instead of Andy Dalton, who's obviously too injured to play in this game. Davis Mills, by the way, if you're looking at Thursday night football, he's getting his first NFL start. Who? Yeah, Davis Mills. Rookie quarterback, another one gets a start, and he gets to go against the Carolina Panthers, who've been surprisingly good defensively. Just another uh, sensational matchup on Thursday Night Football with Davis Mills getting the start for Houston. At least Carolina, as you say, has really come out of the gate strong. So even if you don't think this one's going to be competitive because of the Texans quarterback situation, at least this is, you can kind of look at it as an opportunity to see what Carolina is doing this year, get a closer look at Sam Darnold, how he's improved so far. So, you know, there's a storyline there, but uh, it's tough. It's a tough matchup to sell. Yeah, it does feel like you're reaching a little bit, and you know how I usually come out and just smash Thursday night football, too quick a turnaround, what are we actually going to see, all of those things. I have to admit, last Thursday was a great game, so maybe we get a great game tonight, even though we're not expecting it. The Giants and the Washington football team put on a good show last week. And hey, as you said, a lot of people have countered out Houston. They have fought really hard. They've tried to keep those. If they've, I mean, they won a game first of all, which a lot of people did not expect them to do very much of this year. They kept the other game close with Cleveland for a long time. So maybe they can do it again. Maybe they can make this find a way to make it compelling and entertaining on Thursday night. 
We're going to get Mike Sando of The Athletic to join us in the next 15 minutes or so. We're going to talk some NFL football with him heading into week three, which, as we just mentioned, opens up tonight. I want to play the Jack Eichel clip again because we've had some people commenting on it. It is such a curious situation, and I want to know where some of our listeners point the finger at right now. This is Kevin Adams talking today, addressing the Buffalo media, and saying, oh, yeah, by the way, Jack Eichel no longer our captain. Uh, I spoke to Jack um, two days ago. I spoke to the team yesterday and addressed this. Jack Eichel is no longer the captain of the Buffalo Sabres. Uh, from our perspective and my perspective, I feel the captain is the heartbeat of your team. And we're in a situation from where we were in the past and where we are now that um, felt that we needed to, to address that and make that decision. Jack and I have had a lot of conversations together um, in person, on the phone, over the course of this offseason. I've spoken to his Previous agents daily, his Fabrisan daily, there's been a lot of communication. Jack's here for his physical. You know, he made it clear to me um, that he, he doesn't want to be a distraction. He doesn't want to, you know, take away from what we are trying to, to build here. Um, so he will uh, continue his rehab, you know, not necessarily in this facility on a daily basis, but, uh, you know, and then we'll, we'll work towards where we go from here. No winners in this situation. There really aren't. Jack Eichel? can't resume his career right now because he's not comfortable with the procedure that Buffalo wants him to undergo, and they're not comfortable with the procedure that he wants to undergo. Despite the fact it's his body, the way the CBA reads, they get a say in this. Buffalo doesn't have the return, whatever that return is supposed to be. They can't bolster their prospect pool, their draft capital, their lineup right now because he hasn't been traded. Do you look at one side and say, obviously, that's the side that needs to relent a little bit here? Or do you just understand it from everybody's point of view and you completely understand the snail mate? If I was to choose a side that needs to relent, it's Buffalo. Not in terms of, okay, they need to do the right thing for Jack Eichel. But at a certain point, just for the health of your franchise, you need to get serious. If you haven't got an offer that you think is up to your standards yet, it's probably not coming. So I would look at... I would look at Buffalo because from Jack Eichel's perspective, I get it. If you think this franchise basically doesn't know what they're doing, you, you've completely lost faith in them, you have no more trust in the Sabres, why would you take their advice on a, an extremely serious health issue versus what you're hearing from your own doctor? So I understand it from Jack Eichel's perspective. I just think from the Sabres, I, it, it's, there is value to be had in moving on, right? And I don't see – I brought this up with Jeff Merrick earlier in the show – I don't necessarily see the event that is going to happen that is going to trigger these brand new offers that all of a sudden meet the asking price that Buffalo is holding out for. I'm not sure what's going to cause that to happen. So if I'm Buffalo, I'm saying, okay, maybe we lower our standards just a little bit. We can still get a really good return and we can put this situation behind us. The obvious answer to the rhetorical question you just posed, hey, what's the event? Is that a team gets off to a really bad start and finds itself in a different spot than it thought it was going to be. And it's, okay, this isn't going to work. We're going to have to reset some things here. We have some we have some items we can sell off right now because we know if we acquire Jack Eichel, say it's November, if we acquire Jack Eichel, he's not playing for us right away. And, and I did correct somebody earlier who was saying he's not going to play for four to six months. That's part of the debate about this procedure. Yeah. If, if you listen to the surgeon on 31 Thoughts, the podcast now 32, the surgeon said, look, with a disc, disc replacement, disc, I said disc, with a disc replacement, 
Jack Eichel is going to have a much quicker recovery time here than he would with a fusion. And obviously there's debate about this, but there's the possibility that with a disc replacement surgery, which is what he wants, that depending on when he gets the surgery, he could play this year with a neck fusion. I'm not sure that it's going to happen. And the problem is, I, I completely understand what you're saying, right? Some team is going to look at their situation and, man, we're not, we're just not playing like we want, so we got to go out and make this deal. But, again, it's not as if you're getting in the, him in the lineup right away. There's, in fact, there's a lot of uncertainty about when you would actually get the benefit of having Jack Eichel. In the meantime, you're potentially giving up players off your roster, right? So I, I don't know if teams are going to look at this and say, this is the kind of thing that turns our season around. I think teams might, if teams underperform this year, they might say, okay, we want to revisit this in the offseason. We want to revisit this in the draft to load up for next year. But I don't know about in season if any team is going to buy into the idea that that trade is what's going to turn things around for them. Tax comes in, Jack. I should just go get the surgery he wants. Sure, he'll have to pay for himself, but he'll get the surgery he wants. And what's the worst thing that can happen? Are they going to sue him? Are they going to void his contract? No chance he needs to force the issue. Oh, I think they could void his contract. I think that's the whole point of this, Jamie. Yes. Now, of course, then they lose the ability to get any sort of return for him, but you're also out from under... You're out from under the $10 million for however many years commitment. I, that's kind of the game of poker that's at play here. And Jack Eichel obviously thinks it's enough of a threat, enough of a legitimate threat that, you know, it's prevented him from going out and do what the texter suggests so far. Problem is, it's in the CBA. And the Players yep. Association signed off on this, that the team gets the final word here because it's one of their assets. It does seem counterintuitive. It's his body. But I also, like, I understand the counter argument, even though my emotionally I'm with Jack Eichel on this, but I understand the counter argument of, look, if we're signing a player and we employ people at a high level to assess these situations and we, we deem a, a certain procedure too risky for, if we just want to look at it as a business, Jamie, our asset to undergo, we should have a say in that. I understand the counter argument. Yep. I, I completely understand where Buffalo is coming from in that. I, I also, as I said, you know, if I had to choose one side that needs to give a little bit, I think it would be Buffalo. Not, again, not really in relation to Jack Eichel, more in relation to what they're asking from other teams. It's Scott Rintoul. It's Jamie Dodd. We will look ahead to week three in the National Football League and some interesting suggestions that have rolled into the inbox in wake of our, hey, get the e-bug equivalent in professional football. That's next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. We put the call out there, Jamie. Hey, do you know of any quarterbacks in your city that could be that emergency backup quarterback if the CFL employed that type of system? Hey, maybe they could do it in the NFL if there's a rash of injuries at quarterbacks. He didn't have a position player taking snaps. That guy in each city that does what the e-bug does in hockey. Is Casey Printers still in BC, said Vance in the loops. Not to the best of my knowledge. Nope, Casey Printers. <laughs> South of the border. Tyler says Andrew Buckley is still in Calgary, I'm sure. Andrew Buckley played for the Stampeders, of course. Decided to retire. Pursued a career in medicine. I'm not sure at this point that Andrew Buckley would sign up to do that. Got to protect the hands when you're a doctor. Yes. If you're a doctor, yeah. You don't you don't need that uh, emergency backup quarterback role. Got to pre protect the head as well. Can't be taking those headshots or those... Those hits to the uh, where your head's going onto the ground, either, Scotty. We've had a couple people in the Calgary inbox say, uh, hey, Dave Dickinson, still around in Calgary. And one texter even saying, you know what, Dave Dickinson, forget emergency backup quarterback. He'd be pretty good as the quarterback in Calgary right now, given what's going on there. 
Yeah, there's a bunch of ex-quarterbacks who are leading their teams. Let's see it. Or our offensive coordinators, they're employed in that capacity. Let's go. Let's make that happen. That'd be kind of fun. The best one I got was a text from Alex in Vancouver who said, Napoleon Dynamite's uncle, who is Uncle Rico, of course. <laughs> That's a you great know, one. <laughs> here's what I know. Someone jokingly suggested me because they played against me in flag football. Of course, that's a joke. Here's what I do know, Jamie. Having played flag football for a bunch of years, and I don't currently play, but I played for a bunch of years, I do know there are dudes in those leagues who believe they can play professional football even though they've never played professional football. Like You do get to play against some guys who played in the league Maybe a guy got a couple of games in the NFL. Maybe a guy had a CFL career. He's done now, but he wants to keep in shape, and a buddy gets him out there to play, and you notice the talent level right away. So that's an ex-pro player. But I tell you no word of a lie. I have played against guys. They believe they should be playing professional football, and how has somebody not seen me yet? A lot of guys who could throw it over those mountains, right, if they wanted to, just, just like Uncle Rico. Just like Uncle Rico. Julio Caravetta, color commentator for the BC Lions. He has been suggested here. I think that arm still works. I don't know if Mike Sando likes our idea, but we think it could be something. He, with The Athletic, covers the National Football League, and he joins us now in advance of Week 3, commencing tonight between the Carolina Panthers and Houston Texans. Mike, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. I don't think this has come up in NFL circles, but last night in the CFL, two quarterbacks dressed. They both got hurt, needed a position player to take snaps. I know we saw a weird situation with the Denver Broncos last year because of COVID protocol. And we said, hey, in the National Hockey League, they have emergency backup goaltenders in the stands at each game. Maybe they should do this at every professional football game where there's a guy who, hey, if called upon at some point, you may have to come down and dress just so we have someone who can take snaps. Oh, yeah, they have those guys, but the problem is they don't, it would it's such an unusual thing to happen that they're not going to dedicate practice time to it. But there's always a guy who is a wide receiver who played with an all state quarterback, or you know what I mean, all region or all of whatever uh, quarterback as a, in high school. And then when he got to college, though, he was recruited as a receiver or a safety. Um, and then, you know, or even a guy who played college, you know, um, some. And so you can get through a game doing that, but you'll be completely limited because they won't have studied the game the way a quarterback does. They won't have, know where everyone's going to be. They won't have the practice reps to be sharp. Davis Mills, he will start for the Houston Texans tonight. They're hoping they don't have to go to somebody after him. He goes in in the, in the spot of Tyrod Taylor tonight. This is a Texans team that has been better than we expected to this point of the season. What chance do you give Davis Mills of having some sort of successful debut as a rookie quarterback tonight? I think it's going to be really a long shot because when you look at Carolina, they've done they haven't exactly played, you know, the toughest schedule, but they have done some really interesting things with their blitz packages and they they had these they ran one blitz like three times in a row against the saints and it was never picked up really. So they've been creative. I think that's what he's going to see a bunch of creative stuff and uh, that'll make it hard for him. And the odds of him coming in and doing well anyway, might be long, but I think it'll be a tough, tough one for him on a short week, by the way, too. 
Yeah, it is on a short week, and at least for him, he got a little bit of playing time last week in that loss to the Cleveland Browns. What do you make of Carolina at this point of the season? Sam Darnold's performance is something that's caught people's attention. The defense you mentioned, perhaps underrated and running a different type of scheme. What do you make of Carolina and its 2-0 start? Yeah, they were a team. People in the league were all over the map on them. I actually pulled some front office executives before the year and had them rank each conference 1-16. to I think there was like, if I want to say the range on Carolina was like sixth in the conference to like one of the bottom two spots, you know. So people didn't really know um, how it was going to go. But I think that for sure we can see that there's a a better chance of Darnold being successful, Sam Darnold, with talent around him than there was with the Jets, who were the only team in the league from 2016, 17, 18, 19, and 20, the only one who didn't have an offensive player named to a Pro Bowl, okay? That's a long time to go in an era when everyone gets named to the Pro Bowl to not have that. So I think he was at a real disadvantage. And now he's got probably, you know, a top two or three running back in the league, certainly for all-around player, you know, uh, not just as a pure runner, but an all-around player in Christian McCaffrey. He's got some speed at receiver. Um, So I, I think that they can be, you know, a middle-of-the-pack type team. Carolina, it's 2-0. A couple of other teams that I would put in the surprising 2-0 start category are both in the AFC West, the the Las Vegas Raiders and the Denver Broncos. Of those three teams to start 2-0, the Raiders, the Broncos, and the Panthers, which team do you think has the best chance of sustaining their successful start and, and going on to be a playoff contender? It's probably the Raiders. Now, they have a tougher division, so that is a complicating factor if they're going to have multiple teams from the division vying for the playoffs. But I think you would say of those teams, Derek Carr has probably played the best ball among the quarterbacks over the last year or so. Uh, We know that he's got a good play caller in John Gruden. We don't really know at all whether their defense is going to continue to play well. I think with Denver, they've played two really easy opponents and they're going to play the jets this week. So they're going to get some wins in the bank. It's not the same to me as sort of hanging on and beating Baltimore the way the Raiders did. And, and even Pittsburgh, you know, we know is good on defense. So I'm probably give the Raiders a little bit more credit among those teams of that are two and zero of having a chance. And to flip that around a little bit, you know, we always hear about the impossible odds in the NFL of of a team starting 0-2 and and going on to make the playoffs. Now, it should be at least slightly more doable this year with the 17th game added to the schedule. Which of the 0-2 teams do you think has the best chance of turning their season around? That would be really easy if I had a list of all of the 0-2 teams in front of me. But uh, (laughs) uh, I don't have the standings right in front of me at this moment. I think Minnesota is easily a team that should have been one in the one at least. I mean, would they lose overtime the first week and, you know, last second on a field goal? I I don't think they're a good team, but I think that they should easily be one and one I'm not going to say 2-0. You can't give them both, but that's fairly fluky. And they're probably going to be 0-3. Uh, Because they play Seattle this week, I think that'll be a tough game for them. But that's one of those teams that I think is at best middle of the pack, but they're better than 0-2. Mike Sando of The Athletic joins us here talking NFL football in advance of Week 3. While you mentioned the Seattle Seahawks, it's the only team in the NFC West to lose a game, and it's a game that 
nobody felt they should have lost. In fact, if one of the NFC West teams should have lost last week, it should have been the aforementioned Arizona Cardinals. Has your opinion on what this division is and the hierarchy of it changed at all through the first two weeks of the season? Not really. You know, I still I still felt I came into the season sort of coin tossing between Seattle and the Rams and felt I felt as though um, maybe I'd lean towards Seattle because we know Russell Wilson's really good. Um, so, you know, am I going to waver after two games when they were leading by two touchdowns in the last one? Probably not. Um, I think for Arizona, what you want to see is the consistency over the course of a whole season. Kyler Murray was hurt last year. He's an undersized player. Can he be consistently good the whole year? If he can, then put them right in there. You know, I think the 49ers are injury wise. It just feels like they may fall a notch below um, in the end, even though they're two and zero. You going to play running back for them this week? I don't know who's going to run the ball for that team. Well, the nice thing is whoever they put in there is probably in good position to succeed because of the scheme. And if you if you just go back to Kyle Shanahan, their coach, when his dad was coaching, um, it was the same sort of deal. You could put Mike Anderson in there. You could name five backs who had a thousand yards and they weren't all Thrill Davis, you know, type of backs. So the 49ers should be able to find somebody put into that system and be okay. Spotlight game against Aaron Rodgers and the Packers this weekend for the 49ers. The Rams, everybody wondered what the offense would look like, how much more it could expand with Matt Stafford. Has his Have his first two weeks on the job been even better than you expected? Um. I don't know about that. I think it's been as expected. And I think the thing that we saw in the last game when they played uh, the Colts was what happened when they got behind suddenly in the fourth quarter. And they had to have an answer because they had a punt blocked and recovered for a touchdown. And he took them 70 yards in like lightning time and they got a touchdown. That is underrated. That is hard to do. They didn't have a good success doing that in those situations when Jared Goff was there. They, I think they did it three times in 25 tries. So one for one on the road in your first try, I think that was pretty good, and now you've raised the bar higher because they're playing Tampa this week. Yeah, you raised the bar higher all right, especially when they got a little bit of an injury at running back. We'll see where Daryl Henderson comes in in advance of that game. NFC South has the New Orleans Saints in it. Man, did they go Jekyll and Hyde from week one to week two. Is this all about Jameis, or do you see underlying issues with New Orleans' offense beyond the quarterback? Some of it's him, but I, I, I feel like there's other issues. You know, when you have to relocate your team for a hurricane and are practicing out of state, you play your home opener, you know, multiple states away, and then by the way, for your second game, you have seven assistant coaches unavailable to you because of COVID. I mean, and we're early in the year when people weren't playing their starters in preseason. I think you cut them a little slack on that volatility meter and let it shake out over time over a month or so. One of the uh, the big storylines that's going to get a lot of attention going into Sunday's games, Mike, is that Justin Fields will be the starter for Chicago in their game against the Browns. Matt Nagy, very, very quick to point out that no, when Andy Dalton gets back, he is still going to be the number one quarterback. But I, I think we all know that Justin Fields, if he performs well enough, he has a chance to change that. What kind of performance yeah. does he need to turn in on Sunday to take that job permanently in Chicago? You know, probably... It probably has to be 
good enough that they can win the game. You know, I think that it has to be good enough that it would be really awkward to make the change. So if they go down there and he plays decently and they lose by 10 points, I think it's easier for the coach to say, okay, hey, good job, picked up some things to learn, because that seems to be what he wants to do. But if, if Fields goes out there and shows his ability to handle different situations, let's just say a good example of that would be it's a close game late and he leads a two-minute scoring drive to help them tie the game and force overtime. Then I think it becomes harder to take him out because he handled one of the toughest situations in football. Well, and, and it looks like it could be a really tough situation, again, going on the road into Cleveland to pay the, to, to play the Browns, who are 1-1, one and one, but a very highly regarded team. And I look specifically, you know, they have Miles Ma- Garrett, one of the premier pass rushers in the NFL. Jadavian Clowney is on that defensive line as well. And I know there's been this idea that maybe the Bears were reluctant to start Justin Fields because they don't really trust their offensive line to give him the most protection early in his career, but... You know, to your point, if he's able to thrive in a situation where he, he is dealing with a very effective pass rush, well, that's a that's a box, he, a box that he can tick and maybe show to Matt Nagy that, hey, actually, I, I can handle these situations. I can be the starter. Yeah. Well, I, I agree. I think it's just I think it's play to play also, because remember when they put him in there um, a while back, he didn't even see the blitzer and got hit in the face. Remember that play? Like, yeah, he's. He got hit like you you would almost never see a veteran quarterback get hit like that. Where you know it's like he's standing on the tracks and here comes the train and he forgot that he's on the tracks. That's because for a quarterback, there's so many things you're trying to keep track of during the game um, before the play. And you know what? He forgot that he's responsible for a blitzer coming over on that side, and he paid a heavy price. If those types of things are happening throughout the game, then you, it proves that he's not ready to handle that. If he doesn't have those situations, then why wouldn't you want to see more? Do you think you're going to win it all with Andy Dalton? No, probably not. You're right. And I think there's a lot of Bears fans that would echo that sentiment and ask, yeah, when can we see more of Justin Fields? Uh, I wanted to ask you, their opponent, Cleveland, considered a a contender in the AFC, certainly. The Buffalo Bills are as well. But, you know, even though they get the the big 35-0 win over Miami, it still feels like we're waiting for the version of the Buffalo offense to show up that we all saw last year and that we're all expecting to see. What have you made of Buffalo's start to the season? Well, I'm sure that everyone is has a heightened awareness of them that they play. Um, then you go into a season and, you know, like I said, it's early in the year and you haven't t- played a ton of preseason and you have a couple of new parts. But you've also been in games where certainly they could have used more offense in the first game. But you played a really good defense, I think, in uh, Pittsburgh. And they have some issues on their line. Let's face it, ball, Buffalo has some issues on their line. And so uh, you play out of the gates. Then even Miami, for Miami's problems are on offense. Defensively, they're not bad. So I think they're a team that can make it difficult for you too. I wouldn't read too much into it. I think what happens is after you've had a really good season, like they did, uh, then you don't play for months of the off season. And every day, all I remember is the best and how easy it was. 
And so then we come out the next season. It's like, well, that's just not automatic. You know, they have to get it going again. They're going to have some ups and downs. It's not always going to be easy. And maybe there's some weaknesses they need to shore up. And maybe, you know, maybe Josh Allen's good, but he's not great. You know what I mean? He he had years before last year where he wasn't amazing. So I, I think you you expect some fluctuation with Josh Allen just by the way he plays. I mean, he's diving, running all over the place pulling rabbits out of hats, you're going to see some ups and downs. Tom Brady sure made it look easy for the last couple of weeks and for most of his career, quite frankly. We're going to talk a lot about Tom Brady next week, of course, because next week leads into his return to New England, and he goes there to play the Patriots on October 3rd. You mentioned the matchup with the Rams this weekend. I see that it's the 20-year anniversary of him taking over for Drew Bledsoe, starting for the Patriots. We all know what has unfolded. Those two decades... That spans a lot of different rule changes, a lot of different machinations of what the NFL has been. Mike, do we give Tom Brady enough credit for his ability to play this game a bunch of different ways over the last 20 years and be ultimately successful? Um, We probably do. You know, I mean, I think now that he's gotten out from under New England and won a Super Bowl, I think he's getting – the do whatever do was withheld because you weren't a hundred percent sure Brady Belichick organization, all that type of stuff. I think he's now getting to bask in the idea that even though they have a good team in Tampa, Tampa hadn't won anything. They hadn't even been a playoff team to show up and just win it all. I think you get your due. I think he's enjoying it. I think he's, we've seen him flex a little bit more. He's been out there a little bit in the media, uh, joking around and, and being a little bit more, not boastful, but forward, you know, that sort of stuff. I think he's feeling it. Oh, he's feeling it all right, and he's become the envy of the other top quarterbacks in the league because he's got some personnel control and more control over that offense than some of them do. Mike, thank you very much for this today. I really appreciate your contribution, and we love reading you at The Athletic as well. Thank you. Appreciate it. That is Mike Sando, covers the NFL for The Athletic. I was thinking about that when I saw Brady, 20 years, took over for Bledsoe. It's easy to forget how that offense operated early in his career. And everybody, wow, he's young quarterback. They're run first. They're all about their defense. You wonder, after what he did in 2007 when Randy Moss came to town and they were just lighting things up all over the place, you wonder if they had just used him in a different way, what he might have done from an individual perspective beyond what he's actually accomplished. Yeah, if they had focused on – if they had decided to make that their identity consistently, right? They made it their identity that year. We're going to air the ball out. We're going to throw it a ton. We're going to rack up the yards and the points. But they never really committed to that. You know, even later after that, they went to kind of more ball control with the two tight ends, always relied on their defense a lot. But you're right. His his statistical accomplishments are already incredible just because he's played for so long and had so much success. But he never was in a, a truly, you know, high-octane offense – For a period of multiple seasons. That one year is the one that really stands out. We underrate that ability with quarterbacks because it's not really fair that we assign winning just to quarterbacks or winning just to goaltenders. We all know that is flawed, and yet it gets done repeatedly anyway. But I do think it's an underrated ability of a star athlete to say, okay, what do we need to do to win? I'll do that. Because Tom Brady has done that throughout his career. And we know there were frustrations at the end in New England where he basically said, Get me something else to work with here. We don't have enough on offense, and that's part of the reason that he ended up leaving the Patriots. 
We've seen that with Russell Wilson in the last couple of years, that maybe it needs to be a little more, bit more about Russ, but for the bulk of Russell Wilson's career, what have we said? Dude's a winner. Whatever yep. you need to do on that day, Russell Wilson will do it for you. If that means handing the ball off a bunch, if it means scrambling for a fourth down in the fourth quarter, that's what Russell Wilson will do. You need him to air it out, he's just happy to do that as well. That doesn't come with everybody. There's lots of guys that want to have their 300, their three touchdowns, and make sure that they're at the top of the stat page the next day. You know, and as you said, there's, you know, even for a guy like Brady, right, who has that kind of consummate reputation of, hey, he'll do whatever it takes to win, there still has to be the talent, right, to, to, to back that up. You know, there's a certain point where he's going to look around and say, hey, guys, come on. I know, you know, we can play dink and dunk and we can rely on our defense, but we got to have the goods on offense at a certain point as well. But it is very impressive when you just look back at his career you're right. There's always he's always found a way to get the most out of the team that he was on at the time. Scott Rintoul, it's Jamie Dodd. This is the point where we turn you over to Hockey Central 960 on the eastern side of the Rockies. We'll all get back together tomorrow. They're going to pour over day one of Flames training camp on the ice. We'll dig into day one of Canucks training camp, which went in Abbotsford. Takeaways from that and Bill Daly. Deputy Commissioner of the National Hockey League will join us in the next hour of the program, so stick around on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Final hour of the program, one that includes the Deputy Commissioner of the National Hockey League, Bill Daly, will join us here as the Canucks kick off training camp. I'm not sure he'll have any insight on the contract negotiations between Elias Pettersson <laughs> and the Canucks, Quinn Hughes and the Canucks, so I, I probably will not lead the interview with that, Jamie. Maybe he's heard something. You never know, Scotty. Maybe he's maybe he's uh, yeah. you know trying to transition from working in the NHL front office to being an insider. This is his chance. Do you want me? To ask, do you want me to introduce Bill Daly? Is that NHL insider <laughs> Bill Daly I mean, here to give us insight on the negotiations between Pat Brisson and Jim Benning? Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. What can you tell us? When you think about it, I mean, who's more of an insider than Bill Daly? Gary Batman, I guess, is the only guy. He's He knows more about the inner workings of the NHL than anyone. So there you go. Can you imagine if we started the interview that way and Daly <laughs> went, you know what? Nobody's asked me, and I'm glad you did because I've got a lot to share here, and I think you're going to want to hear this. Let me just uh, let me just pull up my uh, text conversations with Pat Brisson, and I'll, I'll get you all the latest from what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As it turns out, we have bugged their phones, and I can tell you the latest information <laughs> on the conversation that they're having today. We probably won't start the interview that way, probably won't finish it that way either. In the middle, no. who knows? Who knows? It could go a bunch of different directions. It's Scott Rintoul. It's Jamie Dodd. Yeah, the Canucks kicked off training camp as far as the on-ice sessions go today, and like many other teams around the National Hockey League, Jamie, they're mixing things up. It's not, these are the guys that we're probably going to run with on opening night, so let's keep most of them together and put the other guys in the other group and see who can make the jump from one group to the other. Nope, they're mixing it up. This is kind of the way Travis Green has operated. Is there anything we can read into from that first session that did include some veterans? I don't think there's much. Well, no, I shouldn't say there's nothing, right? Because as we pointed out earlier in the show, the Oliver ekman Larson, tucker Poolman pairing right that's something that a lot of people have speculated would be the case on that kind of second shutdown pairing on the blue line for the Canucks that was together in session one so I think if you did expect that to be the case that's uh, at least some evidence 
in your favor. And the only other thing I would point out, not that he's going to be playing in this spot, but just as we try to get a sense of, okay, let's say, you know, worst case scenario, Elias Pettersson can't go on opening night or Brandon Sutter can't go on opening night. Whatever the case is, you need an extra center who is in line to potentially step in down the middle. Nick Patan getting a chance to skate with Niels Hoaglander and Brock Besser. It's interesting in that capacity only. Yep, and he's a skilled player who hasn't been able to transition to a regular role in the National Hockey League and unlikely to find a top six spot here in Vancouver. Some catastrophic things would have to happen injury-wise. At least that's how it would feel. Don't wish anything bad for Nick Patan. Would like to see a local guy make the jump to the big club. That would be great, but you're right about that. It's interesting that Horvat is with Pearson off the start of camp, only because we speculated about somebody else being on that other side. Now, Connor Garland isn't skating in this group. Don't read anything into that, in my opinion. I think no. that's where Garland starts. I think he starts beside Horvat. Their games match up in terms of a directness that they want to play with. The question is going to be who's on that other side. It, I mean, it'll be a surprise to me if everybody's available on opening night and Connor Garland isn't beside Bo Horvat. Won't it be the same for you? Oh, that would be a big surprise, right? I don't see any way that he falls out of the top six, and I also don't really see a major possibility that they split up the water line. Again, assuming full availability. Right now, if Pedersen's out and Miller moves to the center, okay, then you start to get into some different possibilities. But with everyone healthy, with everyone available, yeah, Connor Garland is going to be with Bo Horvat. So Tanner Pearson's on the other side, which we've seen a lot since Tanner Pearson arrived. And we've seen it work, and we've seen it fall dormant at times as well. How often does this get mixed up? There are at least three players, in my opinion, that would be auditioning for that role. There's Tanner Pearson, who's the foundation, hey, you know what you've got, can always go back to that. Maybe you like it so much that you're going to leave him there. There's Vasily Podkolzin, if he shows well, and he can bring a little something extra to that line because of his size, because of his youth. And there's Niels Hoagland, who obviously is a different physical package than Vasily Podkolzin is, but impressed everybody last year with his willingness and jam every single game, not to mention his skill set. Yeah, he showed he could produce offensively, but I think really importantly for Niels Hoaglander, he showed that you can put him out there in tough situations, right? Because, you know, he was riding shotgun with Bo Horvat and Tanner Pearson last year, and we all know that duo is asked and has been asked to match up against other teams' top lines very, very often. Hoaglander was part of that, and he held his own in that capacity. I, If I was kind of handicapping it, I would say Hoaglander has, I don't know about the best shot because we know that Tanner Pearson is, you know, we know Travis Green likes what Tanner Pearson and Bo Horvat can do together, but I've always looked at Horvat, Garland, and Hoaglander as a very intriguing option in the second line for Travis Green. Yeah, and I think a lot of Canucks fans look at it that way as well. And perhaps the best news of today is just the fact that Bo Horvat's out there. They labeled him as under the weather yesterday. It was a surprise that he didn't speak to the media. So it was his first opportunity as the returning captain of this team to address the inquiring minds, which he did have a listen. This is Bo Horvat from Abbotsford. It was tough. I mean, it's just, um, you know, classic uh, Travis Green training camp. It's never going to be easy, and I think it's great for us to – you know, right off the bat to get going right away, and uh, all the guys look great today. As you know, Bo, we like to make a lot of any line combination we see out there. You had Pierce on your left side right from the get-go today. Bill, where do you guys want to go this year? Is there a to having that veteran Yeah. No, exactly. I think, you know, building chemistry right from day one is, um, 
you know, it's going to be huge for us. And, you know, Pierce and I obviously work well together. We kind of know where each other's going to be on and off the ice, and um, I think that's a good thing to have right from the get-go. Um, I mean, really good. Um, you know, everybody looks good out there. Uh, a lot of new guys are fitting in really well, getting along with the guys, and obviously their play speaks for itself. I'm just looking forward to, uh, to, you know, to keep watching them as the camp goes forward and you know, see what they got in exhibition games. How strange is it picking things off without a lance? Yeah, it's different not seeing him at camp. Um, obviously, we'd love him to be here. Um, no, but uh, I'm confident things are going to get done and they're going to work it out, and um, we can't wait to see him back on the ice. Obviously, it's not a normal world, but is there something healing about being at a camp in late September and just getting the hockey calendar back on, on its axis? Yeah, I think I'm more excited about seeing you guys face-to-face now. It's kind of nice to get you guys back. No, it's, uh, yeah, no, it's going to be, it's great to, to kind of be with everybody again. And um, like you said, a normal camp format where, you know, uh, that we're used to and, you know, seeing an 82-game season and playing everybody again, it's going to be, it's really exciting and I, I honestly, I can't wait to get this year started. Well, you guys, uh, you might have some lines and flux with guys who are injured and odd here. Do you understand the team's you know, uh, off of your Alex team so a big winner, it's really difficult to move down low, but you understand that team's deal and what a guy like that For sure. No, I think that's a, that's a great pickup on us and, um, you know, obviously, I'd like to see him at camp and, and see what he's got. But I mean, I know what he's like. I uh, played against him uh, a lot last year and the years uh, previous to that. So, like you said, he's a big body. He's got some skill in front of the net and and hard to knock off the puck. So I think we need that in our lineup, and he'll be great for us. So it looks like with the moves Jim made to bring in Ekman Larson and, and Garland and some of the other, like, it does feel like chips have been pushed to the middle. And Elias and Quinn will be here at some point. <laughs> Is it fair to sort of put that playoff expectation on this group? Yeah, for sure. I think uh, every year, um, you know, we should have a playoff mentality, and I think this year, especially, you know, with the guys we added, and and you know, eventually, like you said, when we have Uzi and PD back, you know, I think we got a, a really good core group, a, a lot of good hockey players, and you know, I think we should set our expectations of making the playoffs, and that's what we want to do, and and that's how we have to play right off the bat. Yeah, um, you know, like you said, it took a while for for things to get where they were with my contract, and I think it was like maybe five days or something like that before camp. So, um, you know, for me, I I really wanted to be at at camp with my teammates. I wanted to to you know to be here and get to know the guys, and especially the new faces and stuff like that. So. You know, that kind of played a big factor in my in my signing uh, before camp. But, I mean, everybody has their own ways. And, you know, I think these things take time sometimes. And, um, you know, again, we just can't wait for them to get back. And I don't doubt for a second that both of those players want to be in Vancouver. They're being told by their representation, got to wait a little bit longer here. They'll yeah. be eager to get back to camp, just like Bo Horvat is here today. As mentioned, he centered... Tanner Pierce and Zach McEwen today. Nick Patan was between Hoaglander and Besser. You mentioned the Ekman-Larson-Pullman pairing. Seems like something they're going to want to get going early, see if it works. Not much to read into it while they're doing scrimmage situations, Jamie, but once they get into playing games against teams yep. like the Kraken and the Flames, as they will do on Sunday and Monday, let's see if that pairing sticks together. Let's see what it looks like. 
Yep, that's uh, that's exactly right. We'll see. It's it's the starting point, but we know things can change in training camp. Although I will say, you know, I think back to the last training camp that the Canucks had, right, which was going back to January of this year, and the big storyline on day one of that camp was, oh, Niels Hoaglander is playing on the second line with Bo Horvat, right? And there were a lot of people who kind of said, ah, you know, they're just giving him a look. It's just day one. He's not going to stick there. And it ended up sticking there the whole year, right? So as much as we say don't read too much into what we see here, and I think that's absolutely the right approach, we also know, you know, and Travis Green said in his availability yesterday, I'm I'm going to take a look at things that I think have a chance at work, and I think that OEL-Poolman pairing is one example of that. Well, as you talk about Holglander, that brings up the fact that maybe people are just refreshed that we're not having a where's Jake Vertanen going to play in this lineup conversation. <laughs> oh, man. That feels good, doesn't it, Scotty? Doesn't that feel good? And I'm not trying to make light of the fact as to where his career has gone. He's got far bigger issues as this police investigation continues, and any time we have the latest on that, we will get that to you. But there was uh, – how many times do we have to go down this road story with yep. that particular player? It's not going to be a story this season. Of interesting Group B, which is out there now, JT Miller is in the middle, which I don't think is a surprise given what we've told you about center ice depth. No Pedersen because of the contract negotiation. No Brandon Sutter. I haven't heard an update on that from anybody as of yet. I'm sure we'll get a medical update on Brandon Sutter. If you didn't hear yesterday, if you missed this in the last 24 hours, Brandon Sutter is experiencing a lot of fatigue, and they don't know why. They did go out of their way yesterday when asked to say it's not COVID. They just don't know what it is, so they're doing yep. a bunch of tests to, to try to, to try to determine that what it is. And Horvat under the weather yesterday, people wondered who's actually going to be playing center today. So JT Miller's in the middle. You're missing a couple of regular centers. We saw Miller play center last year. Not surprising for a second. He's between Garland and Pod Colson. Now, if Elias Pedersen wasn't in the lineup to begin the year, Garland, Miller, Pod Colson, that's a line with some jam. Oh, yeah, that's a lineup you could see absolutely, right, if you have to shuffle things around with Elias, Pet with Elias Pettersson out. And, you know, again, you kind of look at it and, okay, in this Group B, those are also kind of the only three forwards that you really think of as top six guys in that group, right, depending on what you might think of, for example, Jason Dickinson. I see him more as the third-line center. So it's, it's the kind of thing where – one, I could totally see that being a line at some point this year, depending on everyone's health and availability. But I also look at it as, okay, well, you have these three skilled players. Put them on a line together for Group B because you don't really have any other options for them to play with. And Dickinson is skating in the middle today. He's skating with Philip DiGiuseppe, and he's also got Alex Chason, who was signed to a PTO here in the last 24 hours. Tristan Nielsen is skating intermingling with Chase on on that line as well. We expect Dickinson to be in the middle. Justin Dowling between Highmore and yep. Klimovich. That's interesting. Three players who are going to try to catch the coach's eye. Nobody realistically thinks that Klimovich is part of an NHL team this year. The decision is, okay, where do we send this guy this year? Where do we actually assign him this season? And what can he show in camp? He was that late riser in the draft who really showed people something at the U18s. We know about the shot. It's the Canucks' first selection because they didn't have a pick until the second round this year. Justin Dowling's a guy who's going to vie for NHL ice time, maybe not on a regular basis, but he's going to want to be in that conversation of, okay, is he the first call-up? Yes, and, and again, 
if Brandon Sutter can't go for night one, and, and again, we, we really don't know anything much about Brandon Sutter's situation, but you just start to kind of think about the, the possibilities here. If, if Brandon Sutter can't go in game one, you know, I would look at Justin Dowling as more of a, a like-for-like replacement for Brandon Sutter in the lineup than a guy like Nick Batan, for example, right? Justin Dowling can play down the middle. You feel okay putting him in a bottom six, fourth-line role. So, again, playing with a guy like Matthew Highmore, who you also think is vying for one of those four-flying positions, a chance for them to kind of show, hey, we, we should be in consideration for those bottom six roles. We know that Hughes isn't here, again, like Pedersen, because of contract situation. Travis Hamanick excused from activities today for a personal reason, as it was labeled by the Vancouver Canucks. Jim Benning saying yesterday he'll be here, he'll be here tomorrow, so maybe tomorrow happens to end up being Friday. So he's not out there either. Ole Ulevi skated with Tyler Myers today, also not out. Oh, wow. Is that is that what they're doing? Jack Rathbone skated with Luke Shen. Travis Green outlined the competition pretty clearly yesterday. Yep. Three guys, Brad Hunt being the other, Ulevi, Rathbone, and Hunt. Hunt skated with Madison Bowie, who I think is that guy that people forget, myself included. Yes. Oh, yeah, he's they, they got him at one point, but is he still? Oh, yeah, Madison Bowie's a part of this. I, yeah. I guess he's still. I did so a Brad, double take. Yeah, Brad, Brad Hunt skated with him in the morning session. And then you've got the other two guys. It won't surprise me tomorrow if Rathbone's with Myers and Ulevi's with Shen, or if they go with this. This is going to play out in the games. We all know yeah. who's in the competition. We all know how this is going to go down. You show you're the best guy in that position. Opening night comes around. You're going to be there. Yeah, no surprise to me that Yulevi is with Tyler Myers. Just he has a little bit more NHL experience. He's played with Myers on for more uh, frequency than Rathbone has. But yeah, you're right. It's this is not going to be a training camp decision. This is going to be a preseason game decision. And everyone, all three of those guys are going to get their looks. You know, probably alongside Tyler Myers because that's who we would ex- we would expect them to suit up with, especially if Quinn Hughes and Travis Hamonic are both available uh, when the season starts. But those guys are all going to get their opportunities and it's going to probably come down pretty much to the wire, right? Right until the last few days before the regular season. And this is some really good opportunity for some, some people in particular. We know what an opportunity this is for Tucker Pullman skating with Oliver Ekman Larson. He's got the security of the four year deal. He's going to be here. How, how many minutes should he be apportioned? What role can he actually play? Can that actually work? You mentioned Nick Patan, great opportunity for him. This is a really good opportunity for Dowling, as you pointed out as well, given the absence at center ice right now. This is a good opportunity if they keep this line together for a couple of days, quite frankly, for Garland and Pod Colson to skate with JT Miller because if he is entrusted with a center ice role at any point in time, that's a guy who's going to get a lot of ice, and that's a guy who likes to play a certain way. And the fact that they put those two players with him, that to me says something. Well, especially for Pod Colson, right? Because Connor Garland, he's going to be in the top six. You know, they went out, they acquired him, they give him the big contract. Now, maybe he finds a way to sneak onto that top line at different points as well. Maybe get some extra power play opportunities. There's opportunity there. But I look at it as a silly Pod Colson. All right, you're getting a chance to skate with two of the teams, two of the forwards that this team is going to be relying on to produce offense. Like, this is your chance to show you can keep up. It's your chance to show that you deserve those same opportunities. I, I don't think there's any question Pod Colson's on the team. He's in the lineup, but I do think there's a question about where exactly he slots in in the lineup, and this is a great chance for him to move up. This one comes in from Lack. We became contenders largely in part due to having two scoring lines a decade ago. 
Pearson eventually needs to be on the third line as a checker with Dickinson and Bo and Garland, and either 92 or 36, as in Pod Colson or Hoaglander, will give us two scoring lines, and it will be amazing to watch. I think that's what a lot of Canucks fans agree with as well. Lack. Yep. Pearson seems to be the standard, and I don't want to continue to revisit the Jake Vertanen conversation, but whether it was Vertanen or someone else, do you remember a couple of years ago at camp, Travis Green basically said, there's a spot for a young guy. However, young guy needs to go take the spot. So Tanner Pearson represents a standard. And if nobody gets over that standard, Travis Green isn't going to gift that spot to them just because the ceiling might be higher on either of those players. Yep, they got to go earn it. Now, the good thing is Travis Green has also shown guys can do just that, right? That, that's yep. what Niels Hoaglander did last year, or, or not even last year, earlier this calendar year, last season at training camp. He earned that spot with how he played in preseason and how he played early in the season. He was able to keep that spot. So the opportunity is there. Yeah, he's going to make them earn it, but they can go ahead and earn it. And you know, specifically to the texter's point about wanting to see Hoaglander or Pod Coles in there, I completely understand. I'm on the same page. I do wonder if we see something, because Green has so much trust in that Horvat-Pearson pairing, I wonder if we see, you know, in certain situations, hey, if we're leading in this game and we want to shut the other team down in the third period, okay, maybe Pearson started on the third line with Dickinson. But I'm going to bump him up to play with Bo Horvat because that's a duo I have so much trust in. And conversely, right, hey, we're chasing the game in the third period. Let's get Pod Colson in that spot. Let's get Hoaglander in that spot because we need to generate some extra offense. Well, and part of that answer may have to do with how that bottom six rounds out. Dickinson, let's say Pearson does wind up there. And who's the odd man? Is it Pod Colson? How much does Travis Green trust that line to shut things down? Does he mix and match from the fourth line? We're starting to assume healthy bodies here, which is a dangerous yes. game to play because we know what Tyler Mott represents and the trust that the coach has in him and what he does for the special teams. Brandon Sutter, a special teams player as well, who's a great penalty killer. We know how much trust Travis Green has in him. If everybody's healthy and available, that may change the configuration of the Horvat line simply because you might not need that line to do the things that those bottom two lines are able to do and the co coach trusts them to do. Well, and that's what... Part of what makes the idea of having Pearson on the third line so attractive for a lot of people, right? Because then you look at it and you say, okay, we know Tanner Pearson can play that, play that role. We know Jason Dickinson from his time in Dallas can play that role. So if you're able to have a third line that you trust to really play those tough matchup minutes, then... To, again, to what the texter Lack said, okay, you can really have those two offensive-oriented lines at the top of your lineup. You can free up Bo Horvat to have more offensive opportunities to play some easier minutes and focus more on putting the puck in the net. I think that's what makes the idea of Pearson and Dickinson together so attractive is it, it, it affords so many more opportunities for Bo Horvat. A lot of our audience focused on what's happening in Abbotsford today. Bill Daly's got another 31 teams in addition to Vancouver to pay attention to. He is the Deputy Commissioner of the National Hockey League, and he joins this program next. It's Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. The pandemic. You all know about it, and hopefully you know that the pandemic ends for no one until it ends for everyone. UNICEF is leading the procurement and delivery of 2 billion COVID-19 vaccines to countries around the world. An effort of this scale, it's never been done before. By donating to UNICEF Canada by September 30th, Canadians have the opportunity to make a difference and support the vaccination of millions of people in lower-income countries. Every dollar donated by September 30th 
will be matched by the Canadian government. Donate today at unicef.ca or text VACCINES to 45678. That's VACCINES to 45678 to donate $10. Scott Rentoul and Jamie Dodd set to be joined momentarily, Jamie, by the Commissioner of the National Hockey League, Mr. Bill Daly. Before we get to that, a quick text here. Someone saying, nice not to talk about Vertanen, nice not to talk about Erickson, Roussel, Beagle, possibly even Sutter. Current players will talk about the new additions who are great, but there's a major element of addition by subtraction on this Canucks roster compared to last season. We can dig into that more, as I am being told. The Deputy Commissioner of the National Hockey League, Bill Daly, is on the line with myself and Jamie Dodd. Bill, thank you very much for doing this today and for making time. How are you? I'm uh, doing well, gentlemen. How are you? We are well, and I don't imagine there's a job jar sitting around at NHL front office, but there's always a list of things to do. What's at the top of the league's priority list today? <laughs> uh, well, actually, and I know uh, it's a topic you guys want to talk about, I'm, I'm uh, kind of in the middle of a uh, seminar with uh, Turner uh, Sports. Uh, all their talent is, is on a big Zoom call, and uh, we're kind of taking them through everything we do and they're taking us through you know all their plans and uh you know i, I think we're uh we're all excited uh with both of our new rights uh, holders in the united states turner being one of them so from an nhl point of view in those discussions with turner and i imagine with espn as well what type of opinion does the league give on how those entities can be the best partner possible to the league well, I mean, obviously we, we had a, a really good run, a strong run with NBC over a long period of time, and, and uh, I don't think anybody can question or argue that we weren't able to grow the sport uh, you know, by leaps and bounds uh, over the time that NBC had our rights. Um, having said that, I, I think uh, kind of moving back to ESPN, which, which is a traditional league rights holder uh, you know, prior to 2005, um, uh, and really almost back to the inception of the network, um, you know, we're going to go to ESPN and we're going to get all the sports fans uh, in, in the United States. We're going to have a more prominent place on kind of a, a network or a group of networks, really a family of networks that uh, all American sports fans watch uh, religiously, including our players, um, which we found over the years, uh, they're really pumped uh, with kind of our return to, to ESPN. Um, the the interesting part of kind of the dual relationship now with Turner is not only does ESPN have a good working relationship with Turner, they share obviously rights to the NBA um, and some other uh, sports as well. Um, but uh, but you know Turner is is you know really caters to a different audience, a much more entertainment based audience. Um, you know, popular culture, um, young demographics. Um, it, it's a it, it's a new audience that really we haven't serviced uh, for a while, um, and so it kind of we're really excited about the complement of of uh, ESPN and Turner and their ability to uh, turn on new fans and expand our fan base even more than it's been expanded. It is about entertainment at the end of the day. He's the Deputy Commissioner of the NHL, I should say. Bill Daly joining us here today on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Jack Eichel, pretty entertaining when he is healthy, when he's out there. I think we would all agree on that. Our Elliot Friedman reported last month that there was a big meeting. The NHL had a presence there as well with the Sabres and Eichel's representatives, the NHLPA. 
Jack Eichel hasn't been traded as of yet. He hasn't had his procedure as of yet. Bill, what role, if any, does the league, can the league play in helping to find a resolution in this Jack Eichel situation in Buffalo? Well, I mean, I, I think that meeting, which which did transpire, and and really at the request of of, of the ICO camp, uh, believe it or not, um, but uh, certainly Sabers were willing to participate, and it was to see if we could find common ground. There's obviously a difference of opinion among uh, the medical experts involved, and and uh, which have been retained, um, you know, by by the various sides in that case, uh, you know. It, uh, I think the parties, both the Eichel camp and, and the Sabres, uh, are very much aligned in the objective, which is to get Jack healthy as soon as uh, he possibly can be healthy, um, you know, because he's a great hockey player and he's got a, a, a great future in front of him. Um, you know, the, the question is how you get there. And, and it is a complicated puzzle right now. Um, I, I know they're working through it. I, Jack uh, recently made a change in representation, and Pat Brisson, uh has been brought in. Um, and I know Pat's been spending a lot of time uh, with uh, both the ownership and, and the general manager in Buffalo. Um, and, and, again, I think they're on the same page. They share the same objective. Um, they're figuring out how to get there. So hopefully they can get there soon. Bill, one of the big stories, you know, across professional sports, not just for the NHL, obviously in the last 18 months has been how COVID-19 and the pandemic have impacted revenues. And, you know, I think it is especially significant in the NHL because it's a salary cap league. And, you know, we've heard so much talk about, okay, there's going to be a flat cap for an extended period of time, or there's going to be some, some modest potential, a million dollar a year raises for a certain period of time. With what we know now, how long will it be, do you think, until the league gets back to something close to normal in terms of revenue, in terms of yearly increases in the salary cap? Well, uh, in terms of there are two different questions, obviously. Uh, in terms of revenue, um, we, we actually expect that this coming season will return to uh, kind of normal seasons in revenue uh, as we knew them. Um, and, you know, we should be able to expedite growth from there. So, uh, so you know, we're certainly hoping every, everything depends on COVID to a certain extent, uh, but we're certainly hoping to uh, be uh, close to normal this year. Um, you know, we, uh, you know we, we constantly survey our clubs. Um, we think at, at a minimum 28 of our clubs will be able to play to full capacity, uh, at, from the start of this season, um, uh, and maybe uh, in excess of 28. So, um, again, we, we expect from a, a league-wide revenue perspective to be uh, at or above uh, kind of where we were in our last full season, which was 18-19, and, and quite frankly, uh, at or above what we budgeted for 19-20. So, um, the the, the re revenue recovery, uh, COVID uh, issues aside, um, and uh, wishing for the best should be uh, fairly uh, rapid. Um, you know where the the salary cap comes in is kind of what the the extension we negotiated with the players association um, in the summer of of 2020. Um, had very specific parameters for um, uh, the, the salary cap and how that's going to grow uh, and to some extent how it's been detached from revenues, in, in part because, uh, you know, the players wanted to preserve as much of their salaries last year in a, in a low revenue year as possible. So uh, by kind of uh, detaching, 
those two things, there's a there's a fairly sizable uh, debt um, that the the players continue to owe us and will over the next couple of years, which will uh, modulate or or restrict uh, the growth of the salary cap. So I do expect the salary cap next year, for instance, to grow by a million dollars. It'll continue to grow uh, by a million dollars every year until that debt is repaid. Um, our current projections show that debt will be repaid uh, well before the end of this collective agreement. Um, so at that point, um, you'll see kind of more normal growth in, in the salary cap that's related to revenues from year to year um, uh, kick into effect again. And you mentioned that, okay, you're getting back to normal in terms of revenue, and now you want to expedite revenue growth. And, you know, I don't think I'm uh, I'm going out on a limb to say one of the avenues the league will be explore, exploring is sports betting. I know the NHL has partnered with a sports book, and that's something they've started to you've started to look at in the near term. How will that element and that partnership with a sports book and that foray into sports betting how will that change how average fans interact with the NHL? Well, I mean, there's a, it's a that's a long there's a long history to that question, which is uh, you know kind of the the legal landscape in the United States and when that changed and and uh, what what happened after that changed. And certainly, we opened uh, that Pandora's box uh, at the time the legal landscape in the states changed, which was uh, roughly three three to four years ago. So we actually have multiple relationships um, in in sports gaming as do our clubs who, who have that. Uh, it, it has generated certainly additional revenues. Uh, it has the ability to generate even more revenues in the future. Um, I think the biggest uh, thing that attracts us to it is, is really extra fan engagement um, uh, from you know the, the, the sports betting landscape. Um, we, we really do think it's a driver uh, and an engine uh, for for increased engagement, uh, both by our existing fans, but also new fans. Um, and so we'll continue to see kind of an increased uh, exploration into that area as we move forward, and, and we do expect that to be a significant revenue generator. A few more minutes with the Deputy Commissioner of the NHL, Bill Daly, joining us here today on Sportsnet 650. You don't get to pick and choose what winds up on your desk. You know that as well as I do. Evander Kane one investigation is over. There is now an investigation into potential wrongdoing, as it was described in the league statement yesterday. Bill, while the NHL doesn't conduct the investigation itself, what type of oversight does the league provide in a matter like this? Um, you know what? I'm not, I'm not sure oversight would be the right term. Certainly, we're plugged into the results of the investigation um, uh, on an ongoing basis. So, you know, I certainly have the ability to pick up the phone. And as a matter of fact, after I get off this interview, I. I uh, intend to meet with our investigator vis-a-vis uh, -vis the ongoing investigations. Um, so we have the, the ability to, to know what's going on at any given point in time, but it's the investigator that's doing the fact-finding. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously I, I just, uh, um, you know, within the last couple of days uh, completed their their report on, on the, um, you know, the, the allegations that Evander engaged in betting on NHL hockey games. Uh, it was an incredibly thorough report. They did a, a lot of legwork. Uh, I was very satisfied uh, both with um, the quality of the work that was done, but also the, the, the findings um, that certainly there's no evidence that, uh, that he ever engaged in, in betting um, on NHL games.
On that subject of ongoing investigations, obviously there is one currently going on with the Chicago Blackhawks. Where are we at in that investigation? Um, you know, I don't have anything new to report on that. Uh, we're, we're also plugged in uh, into the progress of that investigation, probably uh, less directly because that is a, an investigation that was commissioned by the Chicago Blackhawks, but certainly we're, we're part and, and parcel of, of the end product there. Um, you know, I, I think they're doing everything appropriate. Uh, they're doing it in a in a uh, deliberate way, uh, which I think is appropriate given given the nature of these allegations, how old they are, um, and certainly no indication that there's there's anything um, that is ongoing currently um, that that is is problematic or dangerous. So um, you know, look, they're they're doing what they need to do. They're doing it in a deliberate fashion, and and they're going to get to um, the right conclusions, uh, whatever those might be. Bill, another major storyline in the NHL, the world of hockey, the world of sports over the last year and 18 months has been the conversation around diversity, inclusion, tolerance, equity. And I know the NHL and the Hockey Diversity Alliance have decided not to work directly together, but what is the league planning to do, going to do this season to try and move that conversation forward? Well, I mean, we, it, it's really something we've been doing for, for quite some time now, um, you know, and that uh, predates uh, Kim Davis coming on into her current position at the league, but certainly has been accelerated since Kim has come on. You know, we, we have our own uh, group of individuals. We actually have four committees who are focused on uh, diversity and inclusion at different levels of the sport, whether it be youth hockey, whether it be fan inclusion, whether it be executive inclusion, um, so we, we have a number of ongoing programs uh, designed to promote uh, diversity and inclusion in our sport. Um, you know, the recommendations of the Executive Inclusion Council, um, you know, that, that oversits uh, or sits over uh, all these committees. We're, we're actually vetted with the, the, the Board of Governors at our meeting just two days ago. So it continues to be a priority. Uh, we continue to kind of uh, have uh, active programs. We reach out and, and uh, share best practices with our clubs and make sure uh, that they're doing what they need to do locally. Um, again, hu- huge priority for the league, and, and uh, we're pleased with the progress we're making, and we expect to continue to make that progress and accelerate it going forward. Bill, I know it's about all 32 franchises, but how much has Seattle and the way that they have outfitted their operation and the strides they have made in those areas, how much has that set a template for other teams in this league? Well, there's no doubt uh, that they've done a tremendous job uh, by all indications. Uh, Obviously established a fan base already, um, a a pretty uh, um, unbelievable fan base without even having dropped the puck or played a game. Um, their jersey launch, which uh, which happened within the last week, was uh, the the top jersey launch ever uh, in in the National Hockey League, and actually maybe beyond uh, the National Hockey League as well. It's it's just kind of off the charts. Um, you know, all, all they've done with respect to the, the their arena, their new arena, um, Climate Pledge Arena. Um, you know what they've done in the community already in Seattle. Again, you, you you put it right. They've set a very high bar for not only for future expansion franchises, but really for all the other clubs in our league. So, 
um, you know, obviously uh, we're excited to to see them drop the puck and get playing games. But but to this point, um, you're right. They've they've certainly been a model franchise. Bill, thank you very much for your time. As you alluded to in the interview, you've got other pressing matters to get to. So we appreciate you carving out a window for us here today. All the best moving forward and look forward to doing this again soon. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. That is the Deputy Commissioner of the National Hockey League, Bill Daly. And you get Bill on and there's issues going on around the game. It's not all, hey, you're starting a season. Let's just no. talk about how everything is great. There's a lot in that interview that we touched on, Jay, and we didn't even get to the game itself and the fact that there's going to be a mandate of, of cracking down on cross-checking because many of the matters that we touched in that interview, they are far larger than the, you know, administering of, of one rule and how that's going yeah. to change, even though that's what a lot of people are going to focus on once once games get starting being played for real. There's a lot there. He said that he's in constant communication on these investigations, and while the NHL doesn't conduct them, he is in conversation with those who are going to be investigating Evander Kane for these latest allegations, in conversation with what's happening in Chicago. It's somewhat out of their hands, but I do think it's important that whether it's us or anyone else that has a league personality on that we continue to ask those questions so that those stories do not go away they're very important regardless of what the conclusion and outcomes happen to be yeah no doubt about it and and especially there's you know a couple of high, very high profile ones happening right now that are kind of front of mind still for a lot of people around the world of hockey obviously the Evander Kane one just being announced well one concluding and then another one just being announced but I, I do think the Chicago situation is it's not on the back burner yet, right? And we'll see how that changes when games start going here. But I think that one is serious enough and the allegations are, you know, that have been made are serious enough that that one is going to stay front of mind for a while. I agree. And I think in part due to the reporting of Rick Westhead and those who are close to the Chicago organization who, while they may not have initiated those stories, they have followed up with it very strongly and continue to ask those questions in Chicago. Obviously, we'll wait and see what happens with Evander Kane. Man, the way that all of this has come about with first the allegations about gambling, which he has since been cleared of, as was mentioned by the league yesterday. These latest allegations about potential domestic abuse, sexual abuse, those are very serious. Evander Kane's not going to be with the Sharks. Whenever the outcome of that investigation is made public, there's still another bridge to cross for this player. And that's not for the league to to figure out. That's for the San Jose Sharks. That's for Vander Kane and his teammates. It does seem to be one thing after another right now. Oh, that's exactly what it is, right? Because as you said, it's not as if even if he's cleared in this investigation, right, and they find no evidence of wrongdoing and it's a complete uh, you know, you know, I don't acquittal is not the right word, but you know what I mean for Evander Kane that there's no evidence of of any substance of these allegations. Well, it's still an extremely awkward scenario that he would be walking back into in the San Jose locker room, given some of the reporting that has come out there and how his teammates feel about playing with him. You asked about where where the NHL is at with its revenue recovery, revenue projections moving forward. That spilled into a conversation about gambling as well, which can certainly augment that recovery and and revenue growth 
moving past this, not not that surprised that Bill Daly and the NHL are pre- presenting a pretty bullish front. Hey, things are moving in the right direction. There's more money coming in. He mentioned the television contracts that they've signed with TNT and ESPN and where they're at and the excitement they have around those entities right now. Leagues portraying a confident uh, financial front, if you will. And I think a lot of that has to do with what he mentioned off the top, right? With joining partner or joining, um, you know, going into business with TNT, with ESPN, and not just getting the the money from them, but the potential that those media entities have to grow the game, right? And so it's not just hey, they're they're writing us a really nice check for the rights every year. It's they're actually creating new fans who are going to the games, who are buying merchandise, who are who are doing all of these other things that increase our revenues in different ways. I think if you are going to be bullish and optimistic about NHL revenues, that's where it starts with the potential of ESPN and the potential of Turner. I don't know how much they can move things forward in Buffalo, but just as a National Hockey League fan, I do take some solace in knowing that the league is involved. Hey, it was at the request of Jack Eichel's camp, but the league saying, yep, we've got a stake in this too, and that they're willing to admit, yeah, it's in everybody's best interest to move this longer. I don't know how much of a, a push they can give either camp in the, in the correct direction here, but the fact that the Players Association, the league, Everybody involved is at least talking and trying to get this conversation moving forward. Well, I don't care if you're a Jack Eichel fan or not. The game's a better place when he's healthy and playing. The league's, t- the league's in a tough situation, though, here, I think, because they obviously would vastly prefer that Jack Eichel is playing, that he's in the league. He's one of their star, high-profile, young American players, right? It- it's only good for the NHL to have, ha- have him healthy and on the ice. And, you know, don't forget, Buffalo, it's not a-, a major media market, but in terms of TV ratings, the Buffalo Sabres do extremely well. Like, they are one of the most well-supported franchises in the United States. So to have them back on the right path would be a really big deal for the league as well. It's obvious that it's in their interest to resolve this situation. I just, I don't know how many levers they have to pull here, right? I don't know what action they can actually take to make that happen. Well, the difficult part is everybody's pointing the finger somewhere else. Hey, we could resolve this if you wanted to go through the medical procedure that we recommend. Hey, you could resolve this if you would trade us to a team that's on board with the medical procedure that we need. Hey, other team, you could expedite this if you'd give us the assets we want for Jack Eichel and you could get him up to speed a little bit faster. Each party needs to take a little bit of accountability, and the one that I side with more than any is the Jack Eichel side of, listen, there's one thing I want right now. There's one thing I want. I want to be able to get this surgery. And we can go after that, but I can't do anything until I get this surgery. Yeah, it's a pretty compelling argument. It really is, especially, you know, as we know that it's been performed on other athletes in other sports successfully. It's it's tough to get too angry at Jack Eichel for taking that position, at least from my perspective. And I don't know if you put this to Jack Eichel in his camp, what they'd say, but imagine this one. Like, imagine if Jack Eichel gets to a point where he says, look, I'll even play for you again if you let me go down this road. I'm guessing the medical experts aren't changing their opinion on it. I wonder what the Buffalo Sabres think, though. Yeah, that, that would be a, a fascinating hand to play, but... Oh, man, I don't think Jack Eichel has any interest in suiting up for the Buffalo Sabres again. No, of course. He wants what he wants. They want what they want. 
but it all starts with him getting healthy and getting back on the ice. Most of the Canucks are, not all of them, but most of them are, and that'll be the focus of the attention on Sportsnet today. It's Bick Nazar and Katie Caldwell coming up next. You can tune in, you can text, you can interact at 650-650. It's the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Good conversation with Bill Daly, one that was lined up by the producer of this show today, Raja Shergill. Excellent job once again. Big ups to Greg Ballack back at Mission Control. He can jump into the text message inbox now. Jamie, he can answer those who have been asking what music he was playing coming back from break. He can take his time to do that. You and I are back one more time tomorrow, buddy. Let's go. Let's do it. I'm going to have lunch with the legend. I'll tell you right now. Barry McDonald. Right. I'm meeting wow. him for lunch right now. I will tell you about it tomorrow. Can't wait. Can't very wait. very exciting. Yeah. Have yourself a great Thursday, everybody. We will talk to you tomorrow. Sportsnet Today is up next in your home of Canucks Hockey, Sportsnet 650.